Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're going to continue our series today, Passion, with a message entitled, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Mary Ann Bird, in her book, The Whisper Test, tells of an event that changed her life. She said she grew up knowing she was different and she hated it. She was born with a cleft palate, and when she started school, her classmates made it clear that they knew she was different. She was a little girl with a misshapen lip, a crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. And whenever her classmates asked, what happened to you? She answered by saying she fell on glass. Somehow in her mind, that seemed better than saying she was born that way. She said she knew only rejection outside of her home, a rejection she would live with every day of her life. But then came that moment that changed her. She entered into the second grade and had a teacher whom she simply adored, a Mrs. Leonard. And every year, the children were given a hearing test. The children were to stand at the door, cover one ear, and the teacher, sitting at her desk, would whisper something. Then the student would have to repeat what they heard. And hence, the book was called The Whisper Test. Teachers would whisper things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? It was Mary Ann's turn to come to the door and cup her hand over one ear. And it was what Mrs. Leonard said that day that changed her life. Mary Ann still thinks God put those words into Mrs. Leonard's mouth. You see, she simply whispered, I wish you were my little girl. What changed Mary Ann Bird's life? Love. You know, I've entitled my message, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. You know, you really can't love until you've been loved. You can't give to someone something you don't have. And I say this because so many times we try to worship by telling God we love him. And I fear those words are often hollow for our love is often so weak and shallow and lacking in substance. I would that for every time that we told God we loved him, that we'd at least confess 10 times that God loves us. Until we learn to bask in God's love, how can we actually know what love is? So let's start by reading today's passage, John 13, 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. What we've just read is very high drama. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet. In fact, all of John 13 is the example of love. If you want to know what love is like, read that passage. In fact, if you have difficulty imagining the love of God, read this passage. This passage can be seen as a primer on how we are loved by God and how we can therefore begin to be lovers ourselves. You know, first of all, notice that Judas has gone out. Jesus has held a morsel of bread in his hand and he has said, The man to whom I give the morsel is the man who will betray me. Then he held out his hand and extended the bread to Judas. I wish I could tell you that Judas hesitated, maybe just for a moment. But the text gives us no such indication. 
No wrestling with his conscience. No look of shock that he's been found out. Just a set determination. And once he's gone, it's as if now Jesus can say some things he couldn't say before. It is as if the tension has left the room. And as Judas goes out into the night, Jesus announces that now the Son of Man is glorified. It seems odd. You know, if I had have written the script for Jesus, I think I would have had him say, now the Son of Man is about to be humiliated. Now the Son of Man is betrayed to those who hate him for 30 pieces of silver. It's especially pronounced because of the use of the title Son of Man. You know, in the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is the one who is given authority to rule the nations, not to suffer. Now, glory seems like a a very odd thing to say indeed. And I say this because my theology teaches me that the cross is the deepest humiliation that has ever occurred, and that according to Galatians 3, verse 13, Jesus was under a curse on the cross. I would then also say that after the humiliation comes the glory. When death is robbed of its victim, the grave is defeated, and Jesus announces he is Lord and King. And then, as Daniel foresaw, the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7.14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. See, that's what the Bible teaches, and that's what I would have expected Jesus to say. But at this moment, when Judas, one of the twelve, now demon-possessed, is going out to find the Jewish leaders and will put into motion the entire mechanism of betrayal with a kiss, arrest, mock trial, crucifixion, why is this glory? You know, the answer is found in verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You know, at this desperate moment, says Jesus, Father and Son are glorifying each other. This moment is the supreme moment in which the Father is highlighting the greatness of the Son, and the Son is highlighting the greatness of the Father. Well, how? I think, for one, the Son trusted the Father. You know, Leith Anderson tells the story of what was said during a celebration that marked 100 years of Christian missionaries first coming to the Congo. Let me quote what he said. After a full day of long speeches and music, an old man came before the crowd and insisted that he be allowed to speak. He said he would soon die and that he alone had some important information. If he did not speak, that information would go to the grave with him. He explained that when Christian missionaries came a hundred years before, his people thought the missionaries strange and their message unusual. The tribal leaders decided to test the missionaries by slowly poisoning them to death. Over a period of months and years, missionary children died one by one. Then the old man said, it was as we watched how they died that we decided we wanted to live as Christians. That story had gone untold for 100 years. Those who died painful, strange deaths never knew why they were dying or what the impact of their lives and deaths would be. They stayed because they trusted Jesus. Please understand. God knew that those tribes people were poisoning the missionaries' children, and yet he wanted them to stay. You know, he watched and wept with every family as they buried their beloved sons and daughters, yet he wanted them to stay. None of the missionaries understood this dynamic, but that's just one of the differences between Jesus and those missionaries. See, Jesus understood that suffering and death, and yet God wanted him to stay. 
At that very moment when Judas, the son of hell, was going to betray Jesus, Jesus had already foreseen that this was prophesied in Scripture. He knew that the Father wanted him to be betrayed and arrested and mocked and beaten and crucified, in short, to be humiliated. That was the Father's will for him, and as painful and as hard as it might be, Jesus trusted that the Father knew exactly what he was doing. He would stay in the room with his disciples while Judas found the torturers and the murderers and sold him out. And what is that? That's not only trust, it's confidence in the glory of the Father. The Son's trust tells all creation that the Father is worthy of trust. It's as if he were shining a spotlight on the Father and then said, I'm testifying that only the Father is worthy of that kind of trust because he is trustworthy. But while the Son was shining the spotlight on the Father, the Father was shining the spotlight on the Son. Well, how? The answer is that the Father valued the Son. The book of Revelation put it this way, worthy is the Lamb that was slain. You know, on the cross, the Father was saying that the Son was worthy to be the sin-bearer of the world. He alone was without sin. He alone was the picture of holiness. No one else could take the awful weight of human sin and suffer for the human race. The Father held out the Son to the whole human race and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Here is true beauty. Here is love unbridled. Here is a fountain filled with blood, the only solution for the stains of the world. He alone can atone. He alone brings mercy. And in this way, in the Father and the Son glorifying each other or shining the spotlight on each other, we see in them both one shared passion. I call this the example of love because the Father wanted the world to see the glory of the Son. That was his driving passion. And the Son wanted the world to see the glory of the Father. That was his driving passion. The Son and the Father's entire energy were summed up in the delighting in each other. And it is in just this way that we learn that they not only loved each other, but they also loved us. That's how we came to be saved. Now, once having explained that, Jesus goes further. He will teach the disciples how they can love. Remember, you can't give what you don't have. So here's one of the marks of love. It's called trust. Look at verse 33. Jesus begins with the words, little children, little children. Looking at 11 grown men, some of them strong, hardened fishermen, he calls them little children. Daddy has to go out for a little while and you can't come along. Dr. Neufeld wrote in his series, Passion, the passion of Jesus is a story of his suffering, but it is also a story of his zeal. We see Jesus with a goal firmly fixed on one thing, and he'll not be detracted. In the Gospel of John, we see Jesus absolutely certain about his mission. And as we follow his steps, we witness not a tragedy, we're witnessing the passion of our Lord. You know, in unique and challenging times, We want you to know that we're here for you, but more important, we're in the hands of our Lord who gave his all that we might be secure in his presence. May we feel the assurance of our salvation this Easter season, and may his presence fill us with an inexpressible joy and a certainty of hope that can only come from Christ. To discover all the Bible teaching resources available to you through the ministries of Back of the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.
In just a few hours, Jesus would be taken from them and the relationship they had shared would never come back to them in that way again. Of course, there are two reasons why they can't come. The first reason is that they're sinners and they can't enter the splendor of the king's presence unless Jesus paves the way for them. Jesus has to die for their sins, and if not, they will forever be under the wrath of God. The second reason they can't come is because after he has paid for their sins, Jesus has a mission for them to make disciples of all nations, introduce others to the love of God in Christ. And in the meantime, they will be deeply disappointed and horrified by what they see in in his crucifixion. And then will come the test of being faithful to him to the point of death. There's so much that must happen before they can enter the gates of splendor. But in the meantime, they have to trust him. And the same way as Jesus trusted the Father, no matter what comes, it has to be trust, trust, trust. Just as they saw Jesus go to the cross, And just as he said, not my will, but yours be done. So the disciples must now learn the same thing. And that's what we must learn. Love trust that God knows what's good. Love trust that God is leading. Love trust that as Jesus said in John 14, verse 1, where he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. So love must learn to trust. But second, it must also learn that sacrifice is required. Look again at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I find verse 34 a fascinating verse. In Luke 6, 31, Jesus gave us the golden rule, do to others as you would have them do to you. That's the command for how we should love all of humanity, treat them as we want to be treated. It's love already. But here now is the highest expression of love, and it's reserved for those of us who share a common faith. Love in the way that Christ has loved us. Be willing to lay down your life for the brothers and the sisters. Sacrifice your time, your money, your life. Give it all away. You see, love is more than a feeling. It's an action. And with that action comes something else. And third, it's also the authenticity we find in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, in this, you and I need to see something that's so vital to the ongoing work of the gospel. See, Jesus did not say, you know, you'll win people to me if you have a great worship set and a a great preacher and a, a good youth program and a great strategy. And if you memorize the four spiritual laws or any other slick marketing system we can dream up, what the world needs is not more entertainment to fill the hole in, in bored lives. What the world needs is an example of love. Indeed, that is the cost. You must love. You must trust Christ enough to sacrifice your time, your money, your life for the community of God's people. Are you willing to love? Move forward to John 13, 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You know, when I read this, I come to realize not just Peter's shortcomings, but my own. You see, wouldn't it be a horrible waste if all you and I ever did was read these stories, like, you know, the stories of how Peter denied Jesus and never learned one single thing about our own lives through all of this. We're so easily like James describes us. 
men and women who look at our own reflection in a mirror and then promptly forget what we look like. We thought we were looking at Peter. Then we didn't realize we're looking at ourselves. So since we're talking about love, let's begin by confessing that too many of us don't know a lot about love, either about loving God or about loving others. So we need to grow to become lovers. And how do we do that? Well, three ways. First, we need to confess that we're less loving than we have allowed ourselves to acknowledge. I know we tell God how much we love him, but just like Peter, when we tell him we'll gladly lay down our lives for him, then comes the test. Perhaps for us, it it comes differently than for Peter. Maybe it comes in the 100 distractions we face that challenge our love for Christ. Perhaps in our business, Lord, I serve you more, but I'm so busy and I'm so tired. Sometimes it comes in the way we expose our own dark hearts. Lord, I give more, but I need more for myself. I wonder how many of us, when we get to heaven and God shows us all we spent on ourselves and how little we spent on the kingdom, how mightily ashamed we will be at our lack of love. But every once in a while, all those little compromises, all those little excuses, and all those little sins and selfish lives comes up to one grand climax. Peter is watching Jesus arrested and he flees into the night. He watches the trial and becomes afraid and afraid for his life. And so he denies that he ever knew Christ. Peter learned then something about himself. He learned that he didn't love Christ the way he had boasted. I wonder how many of you have learned that. Perhaps you can identify a moment in your life where you failed in a large way. Perhaps you were afraid to speak up for Christ in university or in your job. And maybe your job or your boss demanded that you do something that violated your faith and then you did it because you were afraid to lose your job. You didn't trust, you You weren't willing to sacrifice, and you know, you don't look authentic at all. And what should you do? Well, confess that you're less loving than you realize. Tell Christ, weep before him, he already knows. And then second, trust that Jesus will open your eyes. Jesus did it to Peter. He made sure that the rooster crowed and Peter had to face a crowing rooster and in that face his loveless self. You know, and third, believe he will lead you to love more. Jesus told Peter he could not follow him now, but afterward. You will follow afterward. Indeed, Peter did in a way that that Christ had reserved for him. Those of you who know church history will know that Peter was crucified. You know, there came a time when Peter was done denying Jesus. There came a time when he learned the lesson of love from Christ, when he was willing to love like Christ and glorify the Father and the Son, both in his life and in his death. Are you there yet? Do you trust? Do you, you trust God so much that, that you'll follow him no matter what? Is sacrifice just a part of your vocabulary, or is it who you authentically are? I love the story of a man named Balthazar Hubmeyer. You know, he was a scholar living in the 16th century. He, he was a Catholic priest who broke from Catholicism and became a key Anabaptist leader. He argued for the necessity of conversion, and he argued strongly for believers' baptism. He opposed the abuses of the mass and the worship of images, and he also wrote against the practice of burning of heretics. And he was also responsible for leading probably some 12,000 people to faith in Christ. But he was arrested and brought to stand trial. He was charged for teaching parents that their children should not be baptized. And in terror, he recanted. And the next day, he was so overcome, and, and he took back his recantation. And he was put back into prison and he was tortured. And then he was placed on a rack. And there on the rack, he agreed to sign a full disclosure of recantation. 
He did it just like Peter. He was overwhelmed and racked with guilt and pleaded with God to pardon his weakness, his fear, and his unwillingness to suffer. And somewhere, Hubmeyer looked deeply into his soul and got back into the ministry. And a year later, he was arrested again, and they tortured him on the rack again. And this time, he simply refused to deny his Lord. And then he was led to the public square and burned alive. And his wife, who stood watching, called out to him to remain steadfast. Don't fear. God is with you, she said. Don't be afraid. You have a great reward. Three days after his burning, they tied a stone around his wife's neck and drowned her in the Danube. Now, I like to tell this story, not because it's so brutal. It is brutal, but because it reminds me of Peter. And frankly, it reminds me of myself. Let me speak frankly. None of us love Christ in the way we boast we do. But I find that Christ is patient with me as he was with Peter. I'm convinced that Christ will continue to train us that we might love him more fully and so that we will prepare to meet him in the final day. You know, and for all who have never committed their lives to Christ, understand that to do so, to give yourself unreservedly to Jesus, is to give yourself to one who will love you unto eternity so that nothing is lacking. And all of you who are afraid and say, I don't know that I can trust Jesus that much. Let me say to you that all of the great men and women of the past were not the heroes that we think they were. They were men and women that were beset by similar fears than we have. But they learned to be trained by Christ. Shall we do the same? Shall we trust Christ to make us more loving each and every day? John, I think it's almost impossible to get my head around this idea of love one another as I have loved you. I mean, when you think about it, oh my goodness. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I find myself, Ben, I find myself condemned just preaching this stuff. Um, I, you know, this is the curse of being a verse-by-verse Bible teacher. You have to talk about things that you feel uncomfortable about. Um, I, I don't know that in my finest moments I've ever come to that standard that Jesus has for love. Um, And yet, he is calling us to do that. I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit has been given. I'm so thankful also that Christ is merciful and that continues to bear with us. And I am hopeful, I am hopeful that eventually, when uh, I stand before him, I will have learned my lessons. And I know that he will make me into a man of love. And that's, I think, what every believer can say. Our hope is in that he is not finished with us. And so, Uh, There is a reason to be hopeful and not to feel overly guilty, but grateful. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. This month, we'll be featuring Dr. Neufeld's new series, Passion. This three-week series is focused on the Gospel of John chapters 12 to 14 and will take you through the study of the critical teachings of the Easter season. Join us every weekday beginning March 30th. And remember, you never need to miss an episode. All of our Bible teaching audio and video programs are available online at backtothebible.ca or for your convenience, sign up for the Back to the Bible Canada podcast wherever you listen to podcasts or download our free mobile app. This Easter season, journey with Dr. Neufeld into an understanding of Christ's sacrifice and victory that perhaps you've never considered before. For more information or to support the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, 
Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.